Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Curious Conversations with Tully and Sarah. We sit down and chat with business owners, entrepreneurs, and some of the best conversation starters. This is a podcast about real life lessons and people doing cool shit. Happy Wednesday, fam, and welcome back to another episode of Curious Conversations. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by our friends at Priceline Pharmacy. Obviously, I'm super, super excited to be working with the team again after walking the Priceline Beauty Runway earlier this year, pre-COVID. <laughs> what an honor and amazing experience it was. Today, we're speaking to Priceline Pharmacy's new health expert, Dr. Priya Alexander, and bringing back the old favorite, Dolly Doctor, and answering all your questions. What do we talk about? Vaginas, mammograms, cervical screening, pap smears, all the questions you guys wanted to know. And quite frankly, we're sometimes a little bit terrified to ask our own local GP. So I hope you liked the episode. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and pass on to all your friends. Ciao. Hi, Priya. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? We are good. Yeah, yeah, good. Good. We're kind of free. Yeah, we are free a little bit, but no, we're good. We're just um, in Melbourne chilling, doing the podcast and excited to talk to you today. So, Thank you for having me on. Oh, of course. So um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and then we'll dive into the conversation? So I never know where to start here. I'm like, yeah. oh, who do I start with? I'm a mum. So I'm a mum of two delicious children. Uh, so one is four and one is nine months. I am a GP, so I work usually in Richmond. I'm currently on maternity leave. I'm also a medical educator, so I train and support training GPs. Oh, wow. And I have this hat, which is the Wholesome Doctor, which is my kind of, you know, social media, media stuff that I do to try and improve health literacy and battle health misinformation. So those are my hats. That's kind of a long-winded, yeah, explanation. Very smart. (laughs) I have have a couple of questions about medicine and how you found medicine. So I'll ask that one first. How did you fall into medicine? How did you choose medicine as your choice at university? So I'm one of those sad people that had decided I was six. I was in year one when I oh, said wow. I want to be a brain surgeon is what I wanted to be. And now knowing what I know, I'm like, thank goodness I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I always wanted to be a doctor. I don't know why. My family are all lawyers and I think they secretly had their fingers crossed that I'd like just go down that realm. But I I just loved the notion of I love blood and gore and Ooh. kind of how the body works and the notion of helping people but also getting like I'm a conversationalist, I love talking. So, yeah, this was the only thing that I can think of being discontent in, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Medicine was for me. But I think people go into it for all sorts of reasons and a lot of people say I wanted to help people, I wanted to do this, but it's a career where you get into it and you are literally learning for the rest of your life. Like yeah. you're, it's constantly changing. So you're committing to ongoing life learning, but it's an awesome career. I would, if anyone's thinking about it, do it. 
Yeah. And at what point do you have to choose to for general practice to be your area of being a doctor? So you can kind of, you can be flexible in med. We're all type A neurotic people, 99%. No, <laughs> <laughs> so we all kind of like to plan and I had yeah. planned. So I went from med school to internship and I was like, I'm going to be a physician. I'm going to be a geriatrician or a rheumatologist. I had decided. And then I did 18 months of it and I did this thing that type A people don't do and I was like, I want to change my mind. Ooh. And I remember my husband being like, this is awesome, do it. Uh, <laughs> like I thought about it for like six months of my life. But you can decide from day dot or you can decide later in your career. You can chop and change. It is completely possible. But I was a late adopter to general practice and I am probably the most like I think it's the best career in the whole world I have the best job I get to know people and their families and their kids and their partners and their parents I get to see people at their highest and their lowest it's just a privilege like being a GP is a huge privilege love that. You actually, by hearing you talk now and just your face and stuff, I'd be quite happily for you to be my GP, 100%. <laughs> now, you obviously are a GP practitioner, but you also um, kind of dive into holistic as well. Is that right? So I'm about, I'm, I'm about kind of the whole patient. So I'm okay. about, you know, diet significantly mm-hmm. is linked with disease and disease prevention. Exercise is also linked. It's good for the brain and the body. I'm about kind of breaking down for people that, there's a lot of misinformation out there. You're going to yeah. get bombarded by companies who are going to say you need to take 60 supplements and and take, you know, all these things to be healthy. But actually, it can be quite simple. So I'm all about, you know, if, if my patient is depressed or anxious, I prescribe exercise, yeah. evidence-based measures. But I just try and do all of it and not just the the really kind of medical stuff or what people perceive as the medical stuff. Yeah, I love that. And that's obviously why you launched your Instagram as well. To Yeah. So what I wanted to ask too before we dive into all these um, Dolly Doctor questions mm-hmm. is what's your take on, obviously we're on social media, what's your take on like the misinformation thing? It's quite scary. It like is. Salary just all those things. Yeah. I'm going to be sorry you asked this. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> really? Just a brief no, little rundown. No, I think it's dangerous. I think it is the dangerous. amount of... Uh, I think anyone with a platform, any influencer now can really spread any health misinformation. Mm -hmm. So someone can look super duper in a bikini Mm -hmm. and start telling people to eat, you know, white and beige coloured foods to treat their child's autism, which is a post I have seen. Wow. And people will believe them. This is an unqualified individual who's telling people how to, uh, you know, treat their child's behavioural issues or how to treat um, asthma. I've seen, you know, celery juice for asthma, for autism, for all sorts of things. You know, the misinformation is rife and it's scary to think that people with no qualifications can tell people really important stuff that is wrong, that can have serious consequences and people just believe it. And I'm like, bloody hell, I don't look good in a bikini, but I can tell you this stuff because I'm qualified. But you're competing with people like Kim Kardashian and Khloe Kardashian who who are advocating for appetite suppressant lollipops at one stage. It's ridiculous which is ridiculous, which is unhealthy and it's also really bad for body image issues uh, in, in women and men. But, yeah, I'm, it's something I'm very passionate about. How do you combat all this misinformation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think people like us need to be out there mm-hmm. and spreading the good stuff, but you do have a lot of resistance. The truth is there's a lot of resistance to, to the stuff that I say sometimes. Yeah. Do you think it's in people's wording of how they communicate their information? Say if someone said, uh, an example, I have a kid with autism, celery juice cured it if they worded it in a way that was I've been experimenting with this and it's helped my son I don't know if it's cured it but it's definitely helped yeah 
that would be different. But that's yeah. not the messaging that no, you yeah, yeah. on social media. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's a scary space. Um, do you have any other questions before we dive into Dolly Doctor? I have a couple of questions because we spoke about G- yeah. GPs today oh, yeah, quite we did a bit. Too. Yeah. Um, my my nana had a fall the other day, and she's been to her GP twice, and he said, "Oh, you don't have a broken hip. You don't have a broken hip." And I was on the phone to my mum today, and she was very frustrated. She's in Queensland, so obviously can't help. Yeah. And she's like, "How the f does this GP know she doesn't have a fracture if he hasn't sent her for an X-ray?" And then next minute, I get a phone call, and it's my pa's called an ambulance for my nan, and I'm just like, "That is so frustrating." And We've had the conversation. How do you find a good GP that just doesn't push you aside? Yeah. You shop around. Yeah. And I think people feel really guilty doing this. And I say to people, don't feel guilty because I think finding the right GP is such a crucial element to having a good health journey. Agreed. So I know I'm not the perfect GP for everyone. And I say to some patients, you might find someone who's a better fit for you out there, but you need to shop around. Like yeah. I have actually gone and seen maybe six before I went with my kids. This is the person for for me and the kids it took ages it took ages and you feel bad yeah guilty but I say to people you need to feel comfortable enough to go in that room to ask everything you need to to raise whatever issue it is and leave the room and go I have nothing left I needed to ask yeah Yeah. I love that feeling safe and comfortable with someone is crucial and it's hard I have people that go to me you're finally you're the one and I have some people who go oh I don't know you know you're fairly intense and I wasn't and I'm like that's okay yeah you know, plenty find the right fit but but you've got to just you know shop around it sounds a bit you know weird but you've got to yeah. shop around till you find the right one ask your friends who do you have what's the vibe like yeah and, and try them out I yeah. think I know this is my problem and I've seen you go through similar circumstances when you need to go to a GP me myself I just need to go then and there so I'm like I just go to my clinic whoever's free that's who I'll go to yeah yes. Can be frustrating. I know I go to a clinic and I found a doctor, and then the clinic that I go to, for some reason, they keep leaving. So I keep getting these new doctors, and I'm like, have to explain my, you know, whatever's wrong again. And I'm like, oh, it's so frustrating. But you're right, you probably have to shop around, definitely. Mm. But you might be seeing the registrar, Tellies, the other things. So you've got training okay. doctors who are often really awesome because uh, they're on top of everything, and the registrars have usually six month terms. Oh. And so they, they move on. Oh, and so. They're wonderful, but sometimes you can follow them, but they can okay. move all around Victoria. That's where I train them. Yeah. Um, but, yes, it's, it's it's tricky if you've got something that pops up on the day. Like I have my patients who go, I had a headache and, and you didn't have any available appointments or you don't work on that day. Yeah. And I say, look, for things like that, yeah. go and see whoever's available. But if it's something like, you know, your cervical cancer screening test or you've got a mood disorder or sleep issues or your mm-hmm. stress or a breast issue, Go to the person who you feel safe with, book those things ahead, plan ahead. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Did you have any other ones before you go? Um, No, I think that's all I, finding a good good GP. Yeah. So for everyone that's listening, we reached out to our followers um, and we kind of put it as like a 90s Dolly Doctor from Dolly Magazine because we find that a lot of our followers, and I know for me as well, there's a lot of questions that you might want to ask a doctor but you're too embarrassed. Mm -hmm. So um, we kind of went out to fam and ask them a few questions so being female I think maybe the first section we should go into is pap smears yes okay so um why should we have a pap what no sorry why have pap smear tests been pushed back to every five years instead of it being every two years great question very passionate about this but the thing is the test changed at the end of 2017 
the test evolved. It got better. Okay. So the pap smear test is, it, it feels the same. So a pap test versus a, a cervical cancer screening test will feel the same for you. For the listeners, you're going to have to get on the bed. You're going to have to take your undies off. It's going to be that awkward moment. Yeah. Okay. It's still going to happen. By the way, as a GP, I think nothing of it. We don't really care. So honestly, in our head. Please, yeah. Please, yeah, it is. So yeah. please just go if you're due. But what we used to do with the pap test is actually get cells from inside um, from the cervix and we yep. used to look at them under the microscope or people did in the lab and they would look for changes within the cells mm-hmm. that suggested that HPV, which is human papillomavirus, the virus that causes cervical cancer, had been around. Okay, mm-hmm. so we were looking for cell changes. Then we got this new test, which was better. So instead of looking at the cells now, we basically test for HPV directly. So when I take the sample, the report comes back and says, Tally or Sarah, there's no HPV detected. And if there's no HPV detected, there's a very low risk of cervical cancer. Like it's not detected. Mm -hmm. Now, what we know is that in that five-year patch between tests, if you're negative, if you did contract HPV, which I say to my patients is like your cervix having a cold, even if you did contract the virus, it takes 10 years or so for you to go from the virus to cancer changes. Get out. So the five-year window is safe. If you are HPV negative, we don't detect it on the swab, the five-year window is safe. People get really nervous by the five years, but I'm like, the test is better, it's more sensitive, it tells us more more stuff that we need to know, so five years is safe. But just for people listening, if you ever had symptoms that were new, like you had bleeding after sex or you had irregular vaginal bleeding, we might test you sooner than that five-year patch. Yeah. I've got a question. I just had a pap smear. I'm quite open on this podcast. So yes. I had a pap smear probably in about April and it came back as abnormal cells, yes. so HPV. Yes. Um, and then I went to my Chinese. Uh, I go to my Chinese. I was going to get the biopsy. Is it the biopsy when you get the after? Is it that? So if you, it depends. So if you have a low-grade HPV, one of the ones that are mild, we repeat the test in 12 months. If you have a higher grade, we send you to a gynecologist for a colposcopy. Yeah. So yeah. I did that. Yeah, that's okay. right. Sorry, yeah, and um, with the vinegar and stuff. Right. Um, yeah, so I had that, but bef- and I had that booked in, but before that I went to my Chinese doctor because I get acupuncture for period yes. and stuff. Yeah. And I was just telling her, I'm like, oh, HPV came up. And she said that, and correct me if I'm wrong, she will, I'm sure. She said that you can actually do some things to help it go away or something like that. Is that right? No. Okay. No. It's, it, it's, it, it's it, like I said, that's like a cold of the cervix. Is there anything okay. you can do to eradicate your cold quicker? No. So, you know, no. If it's there and it's high grade, the colposcopy is what you need. If it's low grade, you need a repeat test in 12 months, but your your doctor will tell you. But, yeah, there's nothing you can, like, nothing you can drink or do to the vagina to make it go away quicker. (laughs) So I went and then, anyway, there was, it was very low abnormal cells and then they were going to do the biopsy, but she said that actually it's fine. So I didn't end up. Good. Um, Yeah. Dr. Pre, you mentioned it before and tell I know you asked me this before. I asked this before, yeah. When you have a cervical cancer screen test and a pap smear what's the difference and is it one test so pap smear is the old test oh, pap smear yeah. refers to the test where we took the cells oh, and looked right. under the microscope yeah. the cervical cancer screening test is the new test that came in in 2017 okay. where we now look for hpv directly oh, we sense. still look at the cells under the microscope sometimes so with tally's test where we detect hpv we look at the cells then to go oh are there changes consistent with cancer here mm-hmm. but the pap test was the old one 
the CST or the cervical cancer screening test is the new one. Okay, so the same for the patient. Okay, that's okay because that's where we were confused. We're like, oh my gosh, what is yep. the difference between pap smear and cervical? And should we be going to get a cervical now? Like, no, I nah, was so confused. That. Okay, yeah, that makes sense because a lot of I know I saw a few of the people were asking that what was the difference. A lot of women are confused. Yes, well, and that's that's that worries me because I when people are confused, they tend not to go for the test. Exactly, and that worries me. So this is what I would say to just really break it down because okay. I know the next question is going to be when do you start getting a, a cervical cancer screening test? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, <it is. laughs> so if you're 25 yep. and you've ever had sex. Yep. Any sexual contact, you should be having a CST, a cervical cancer screening test. Mm-hmm. This includes women who only have sex with women because HPV is from skin to skin contact. Yep. So labial or genital rubbing, you can still get HPV. Okay. It's worth saying that for women who have never had penetrative intercourse or who have been not screened, we can do special testing where you self-screen, but you need to talk to your doctor. Okay. Um, but 25, any sexual activity you need to go and have a cervical cancer screening test and you need to go and have it five yearly. If you are a woman who is under 25, you've had a previous pap smear with it was normal, we won't screen you till you're 25. We won't invite you till you're 25 because we know that cervical cancer under 25 is rare, very, very, very rare. We were over screening before. If you're under 25 and you're sitting there at 20 going, oh, but I had an abnormal test when I was 18, you must still go and attend your doctor when you're due. You must, you must, you must if it was abnormal. Yeah. Um, for any woman of any age who has this kind of, um, you know, abnormal symptoms like bleeding after sex or abnormal vaginal bleeding, we will talk to you about whether or not you might need the test earlier than when it's due or before 25. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. What was the vaccine we got at the yeah. end oh, of high school? school. Yeah. HPV. HPV yeah. vaccine, yes. And are they still handing them out? They are. Really? And now we've got oh, one that covers more strains of okay. HPV, so it's awesome. And even women who've had that vaccine, doesn't matter, you're fully vaccinated, you still need a cervical cancer okay. screening test. Okay. Yeah. Do we need a top-up vaccine at any stage? No. If you've completed the course, you're fine. Was okay. it like three? Yeah. Was it like a few? I remember yeah. getting that actually. Correct. So, a question just referring to me, because I had abnormal cells, I had the colognoscopy or whatever it was. <laughs> I can never remember what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, do I, because I haven't, um, I spoke to my doctor briefly, but do I now go every five years or should I go every two years? Or no, still- you'll be screened more frequently and yeah, it depends on what type of HPV you had and yeah. what they saw on the cult. So they might say, do you come back in six months? Yeah. They might say 12 months. Yeah. It depends. So you need, please check that. Yeah, <laughs> I, get a, I get a text message, but I will, I've marked it in my diary when I went to get that. So I'll make sure I'll go. Good. Um, yeah, that was my other question mm. for that part. Okay, now that we're talking about testing and stuff. We wanted to talk about mammograms. Yes. When this should is a we big one for yeah, me. Yeah. I when yeah, when should we start? Um, and also I have a question, where do you go to get a mammogram? Because that's something that I actually don't know. You, you were talking about a friend. Yeah, before. so I actually I spoke to a friend a couple of days ago getting my eyelashes done because we're allowed to do that now. Um, and she was saying that breast cancer runs in her family. And because I, I was saying we we're interviewing you today. And I said, you know, if you've got any questions, let us know. So breast cancer runs in her family and she went to the doctor and she was like, look, I'm concerned it runs in my family. I'd really like you to check my breasts um, or, you know, where should I go? And he actually, he said, no, 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 you're too young. I'm not checking. Um, And she left feeling very frustrated. And then now she doesn't know where to go to get a mammogram. And yeah, so we just want to get more information about that. 
So in Australia, um, we've got several cancer screening programs. We've got bowel cancer, we've got breast cancer, we've got cervical cancer. Those are the ones that most people are aware of. Um, Breast cancer screening in Australia starts at age 50 to 74. So any woman who is aged 50 to 74 is invited to partake in a two-yearly breast screening service. Okay. You are allowed to actually go and get screened at places like Breast Screen Victoria or SA, wherever you are. You are actually able to go and get it done from age 40. They'll okay. screen you, but they won't invite you. They're not trying to, to capture you, to recruit okay. you, but they will from 50 to 74. Here's the thing with breast cancer. This is a huge area of medicine. I'm going to try not to go on too much here, but just cut me off if required, but let me keep it really simple. Yeah. Yeah. Every woman should be breast aware is what we yeah. call it. So you need to know how your breasts look and feel. Mm-hmm. And you should be having a feel every month or so in the shower, whether you're just having a quick feel in the shower or you do an actual routine examination with flat hands or however you do it. If you ever notice something that wasn't normal for your breasts, nipple discharge, a lump, a skin change, something in the armpit, you must go and get it reviewed. Breast awareness. So when your breasts change and you go, that's not my breast, you need to go and get it reviewed. In terms of uh, breast cancer risk, it depends on lots of different things, like how many people in the family have been diagnosed, how old were they, are they all on the same side of the family, are there other cancers in the family which suggest things like Lynch syndrome, which is a rare cancer syndrome. It takes a thorough family history for us to actually determine whether or not you are at low, moderate or increased risk of breast cancer. So in terms of if one of you two said to me, I want to go and get screened for breast cancer, as your GP, I would say, well, let, let me ask you 60,000 questions about your family history. Yeah. Let me map it out. Let me go to the RACGP, which is, uh, you know, the GP college's guidelines on how to accept, um, assess breast cancer risk. And I will tell you what your risk is and whether or not you need to be screened early. If you're a woman who needs to be screened early, I might involve a breast specialist because you might need a very special test like a breast MRI. Uh, I wouldn't use a mammogram in any one of your age group because your breasts are too dense because you've got still a lot of estrogen floating around, so I might consider an ultrasound. Okay. And that's when we get into which investigation do you use when. But I think if you're worried about breast cancer, have a chat to your GP so they can go through, assess your risk and tell you what your plan is. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I I actually didn't know all that. No, I I didn't know that. I thought mammograms were like for anyone okay that's no. I'm glad you covered that um uh, and then the next question was is an ultrasound an, an alternative to a mammogram so that can be an alternative if you're younger I wouldn't say alternative we don't like but like it's not mammogram okay. or ultrasound ultrasound yeah. is great for assessing breast slumps in younger women where the breast okay. is dense I might use it in an older woman to say can you tell me what the lesion actually looks like mammograms are like a low-dose x-ray you know most people go they squash the breast which they do but it's yeah. a x-ray and they look for microcalcifications, little bits of um, kind of dead tissue that are early signs of breast cancer. Some of my patients will get a mammogram plus an ultrasound. Some will get just a mammogram. Some will get just an ultrasound. They are not alternatives. They are both often synergistic. Yeah. Different roles is what I okay. would say. Different roles, yeah. Huh, if a patient came to you, Priya, and was like pretty insistent on wanting one, would you just... And they like, I don't care about how much it costs. Would you just say, okay, like, here's your script to go? I talk. I will I have, you know, and I have patients request, you know, I really want to get um, a whole body MRI done because they're really worried about cancer or I want to get this yeah. done. 
Uh, I will talk to the patient and nut out, why do you want the test done? Well, this is what it won't show. This is what I will talk to my patient. That's great. Of course, if after, you know, a 15-minute conversation, they are still adamant despite risks and benefits and they want to go down that path, fine. Mm-hmm. but I will counsel them and, and we'll make the decision together. It's called shared decision-making where we, we do it together. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that. That's good. Um, I just want to go back actually to like um, uh, cervical stuff a little bit. It's a little bit different, but we were also talking about this before, ovarian cancer and stuff yeah. like that. Um, so can you get checkups for that? Not Easily. So there's no great screening test for ovarian cancer. There are tumour markers, there are imaging tests, but there is no clear guideline on how we should screen women for ovarian cancer in Australia. It's not one of the screening programs we have going. So I would say if that's something you're very worried about, again, chat to your GP because we go through familial histories and Lynch syndrome is that an issue and, and assess risk. If you've got symptoms that you're worried about, like bloating or a mass you can feel, you must go and speak to your doctor. That's what we say. Yeah. yeah. Is Dr. Google the biggest headache in your life? Yeah, <laughs> it's one of them. It's yeah. one of them. <laughs> information on social media. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Google, look, you know, some of my patients are like, it actually made me feel better. And I'm like, but it also gave you a false sense of reassurance or in a lot yeah. of cases it's like you've got cancer. Yeah. Like, you've actually got a cold. Yeah. Um, you know, but. Yeah, look, yes, Dr. Google does drive me mad. In short, Sarah, yes, it does. Oh, I avoid Dr. Google at Good, all. good. Uh, no, you don't. You're no, a bit I, of a hypochondriac. No, I'm you. not. I don't, I, don't, I don't go on Google because I'm. it gets in my head and then yes. I think I have cancer, so I don't <laughs> actually don't use Google. Um, I would prefer to go to the doctor. Um, so periods. Um, I, I get period pain quite bad, so I do get acupuncture, but with the period section, and I want to know this as well, how long can you really keep a tampon in for? It's a good question. The The, the textbook answer is no more than eight hours, eight okay. hours max. Also, but theoretically, you can sleep in. I've never slept in one. Oh, never. I feel sick. Really? Okay, that's interesting. In one. I've so, never slept in one either. I always okay. take use a pad. Yeah. Interesting. I actually but, didn't know you could sleep with one. I thought it was dangerous. Oh, that's what I thought, toxic yeah. shock. yeah. Okay, so toxic shock syndrome is really rare. Um, okay. And that's that's basically from staff, you know, getting into the bloodstream. It's very, very rare. Okay. What we say in medicine is stasis is the basis. In med school, you learn this line, and actually it's like the basis of a huge amount of medicine. But if you leave anything in, in the body for too long, like a tampon which is soaked with blood, mm-hmm. it's a breeding ground. It's a petri dish for bacteria. So you risk things like bacterial vaginosis. You can increase your risk of thrush. Yes, toxic shock syndrome, very unlikely. Really? Yeah. They've changed the composition of tampons to reduce the risk of that, the absorbency of them. But, you know, eight hours max. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Never knew that. Commercial break. We want to let you know about a game-changing initiative our partners Priceline Pharmacy have put together. Sarah, have you heard about this new initiative from Priceline Pharmacy? It's called Scripps Now and it's really simple to use. I hadn't, but I do now and I agree, Tal, it is so easy. The way it works is you walk straight into your local Priceline Pharmacy and use the in-store health station to easily request your script repeat. Then a doctor off-site reviews your request straight away and if everything is all good, they'll email an approved script directly to your Priceline pharmacy and the pharmacist dispenses it and off you go. We assume a lot of our listeners are on some sort of 
contraception. And for a lot of us, it's probably the pill. So if you have a regular repeat prescription, just remember Priceline Pharmacy Scripts Now service next time you need your refill. It only takes 15 minutes and costs just $19.99. Make sure you tell your friends too, because it's really game changing. Going back to period pain, um, is that ble- is that normal, period pain? Oh, that's a tricky one. Is period pain normal? Look, it can be. Oh, I have to be so cautious as a GP. It can be normal. Yes. What's normal period pain? A lot of women will get a little bit of cramping days one and two of their period. Yes. Um, it's still quite bearable. You might take a bit of paracetamol or bear through it. That can be normal period pain. The normal cramps that I would get, I'd call normal. Yeah. What's not normal is period pain that is absolutely excruciating, that stops you from doing what you would normally do. Any pain that's not with your period, so mid-cycle pain or pain during intercourse. The reason I say you've got to be cautious is endometriosis. Endometriosis can hide in lots of different funny symptoms. So is period pain normal? I would say you know, the next time you're a GP, just ask them. Just, mm-hmm. you know, just wanted to check that it's normal to have a bit of cramping at day one and day two, but I also get this and they might go, oh, wait a minute, that's not normal. Um, but, yeah, normal should be literally the first couple of days of your period and then it dissipates. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. like my, the first day, like I, the hour before I start bleeding, I'm in so, like, so mm-hmm. much pain, like cramping, but I can still do stuff. The first yeah. day is a nightmare and then I'm fine. Yeah, so that, that that's probably normal. And, and so I often say to some patients, you need to take prophylactic. If you know your period's coming, yes, you need to take some right. prophylactic pain relief. Don't let the pain come to 10 before you exactly. take it. Yeah. Take it before it gets to 10. Yeah. Right, I've learned that and I do that. So What's prophylactic pain relief? Oh, so it's it's getting on top of your pain before it gets to oh, 10. So like taking Panadol before? Yeah, correct. Did you I, know know that, I know I know it's coming. Like yes. I, I'm so in tune with my body and I literally know an hour before. It's weird. And I'm yes. like, I'll go take Advil or something. Yes. And then so the pain doesn't get, yeah. yeah, so the pain doesn't get so bad. Yeah. And terrible. Yeah. We had so many questions about vaginas. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. it. I think we don't talk about it enough. No, we don't. And that's yeah. why it's great talking about yeah. it and like getting people. Do you want to go on this one? Yeah. I was just going to say, how did, one question we got, how do you know if you have an unhealthy vagina or what constitutes a healthy vagina? Again, you know, that, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of pressure. I'm going to go into this now. I'm sorry. Yeah, go, there's please, a lot of pressure please. on women. A lot of pressure on women Agree. about how we look, how we should look, uh, about dress size, about body shape. Mm-hmm. And now it's gone to vagina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now it's gone to we're now told how our vagina should look, how the vulva should look, how it should smell, how it should taste. Mm-hmm. Now it's gone too far because we're all different and okay. we're all going to accept a different level of normal or healthiness of our vagina. Now what I would say is that if a woman is listening to this and goes, actually I have been worried about you know some unusual bleeding or some unusual odour or discharge, then it's probably not healthy for you and you should go and get it checked out. Mm-hmm. The reason I say there's not a definition for healthy versus unhealthy is some women will have something like bacterial vaginosis, which is a, a condition where you have overgrowth of the normal bugs in your vagina. They have not really bothered by it and they kind of go, oh, didn't even know about it. It's not causing me any issues. I'll leave it. Whereas I'll have another patient with the same condition and it's driving them mad. They're mm-hmm. like, all I can smell is this fishy odour. It feels itchy down there. I've got this discharge. What's healthy and unhealthy is different for all of us, but I wouldn't let someone else tell you what healthy and unhealthy of your vagina is, is all I'm going to say, because I think mm-hmm. there's far too much pressure on women now. Agree. Agree. Yeah. Um, how do you prevent getting thrush? Yeah, thrush is pesky. It's annoying. So, it? Yes, it is. And so antibiotics, a lot of women will go, I remember when I took antibiotics for my UTI mm-hmm. or whatever you took it for 
you can get thrush and that's where probiotics whilst you're taking antibiotic might help but candida which is the um the yeast that causes thrush loves dark warm moist environments doesn't have to be dark actually i added that i'm used to reading books to my kids um but but what you need to think is if you if you're wearing tight fitting clothing all the time like jeans and leggings like mum mum uniform yeah it's a problem so you want yeah. to ideally wear some loose fitting clothing you want to aim for like cotton undies sometimes and the main thing is you don't want to overclean the the genital regions. Don't be douching and putting all sorts of fragrant soaps and things there because you can change the environment of the vagina. Yeah, that made me like increase your risk of thrush. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you say that, should we be using regular soap or not or not using soap at all or what? You don't need to. People get yeah. very concerned. Like it's a self-cleaning area. That's really. what I thought, yeah. Yes. And so, yes, you can clean the external skin with whatever mm-hmm. you're using to bathe, ideally fragrance-free and soap-free, ideally. Yeah. But you do not need to clean the internal. People that use all these kind of um, flushes and douching and think you don't need to do it. It's a self-cleaning area. Clean the external skin gently just with water or a soap-free product. That's all you need to do. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and another thing about thrush, or I might not be related, but does an itchy vagina mean that you have thrush? Not necessarily. So there's so many things that can cause uh, genital itching or vaginal itching. Thrush is one of them, and women who've had it will go, I know that kind of cottage yeah. cheek or thicker yeah. discharge I get. Um, I know the feeling. So, yes, it can be thrush. Bacterial vaginosis can cause um, a little bit of vaginal itching. Sexually transmitted infections can present like that, so it's worth having a chat to your GP and not assuming it's thrush. So can skin conditions. So people forget you can get eczema, you can get psoriasis, you can get all sorts of um, skin conditions that affect the genitalia that can cause itching. So, yeah, if it's not clear-cut, I would go and get it reviewed. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Never knew that. Yeah. And also when for females, this was a question as well, when females are having sex, should they always pee after <laughs> sex? Postcoital urination, yes. Okay. 100%. And why? Would that be in a UTI or what? Correct. why? It's UTI prevention. So in men, you have to envision, if you envision the penis, they've got a really long urethra. The tube that takes the urine from the bladder through to the outside world is long. The penis yeah. is longer than our urethra, which is really short from bladder to the outside world, is teeny tiny. So when you have sex, you basically end up pushing bugs up into your urethra. That's a wow. that's part of the friction and, and kind of sexual activity. You must wee after sex. I tell my patients this, they will if they're <laughs> listening, go, oh my gosh, she's on it again. <laughs> you must do a postcoital void because you flush the bugs out, you reduce your risk of a UTI. Yeah. Okay. So yep. if you don't pee, the only thing that you could get is a UTI. That's the that's the thing we're trying to avoid with a okay. postcoital void. Doing a postcoital void, so weeing after sex, won't reduce your risk of chlamydia or yeah. gonorrhea or the other stuff. If that's what you're alluding to, because people want to go, will I also reduce my risk of an STI? Uh-huh. Yeah, just the damage is done. <laughs> Wear a condom. Yeah, yes. the damage yes. is done. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that all on vaginas? Oh, do you have any other questions <laughs> for vaginas? I don't know. I was just really fascinated. So that's why I was deep in thought. Um, moving across to medications, yes. can medications make your BO smell? 
Look, yes, some medications can probably change body odour. They're rare ones, though. The ones that can do that are really quite rarely used. And I think people would like to blame a med when it's <laughs> often going to be much more lifestyle stuff, like probably yeah. what you've eaten, be it garlic, cumin, all these things that can come out in your body odour, or be it what type of topical deodorant you're using and how effective it is at actually stemming the glands and things. But, yeah, medications the normal ones you'd see day to day are often not the things that are changing your body odor. Mm. It's usually going to be lifestyle stuff. Okay. Interesting. Uh, what are your thoughts on prescribing medication for someone with depression? So this is a, this is a, an interesting one. Cause I think when people ask it like that, it's, there's, there's a lot of stigma with medication for depression. Yep. And I would say to people listening, if you had pneumonia, I would prescribe you antibiotics and you would take it probably without question. Yeah. If you had a severely high blood pressure, I would prescribe you an antihypertensive and you would take it without question. Mm-hmm. There is this stigma with antidepressant therapy, which is quite devastating still given, um, you know, how, how prevalent these, these mood disorders are. Here's the thing. In mild depression, so mild, moderate, so people with mild, moderate severity, we know that psychology and lifestyle interventions like exercise and meditation and things are more effective than medication alone. We know that. So in mild cases, it would be very rare for me to actually prescribe antidepressants in depression. I don't do it frequently. I'm Mm. I'm usually using psychology, my my very clever psychology counterparts um, for CBT and other measures. I'm usually prescribing exercise, doing frequent reviews, prescribing meditation, improving sleep quality, saying cut caffeine, let's reduce alcohol, I'm doing that stuff. Mm. But for my patients who are moderate, severe, the evidence is that in those patients who are going to the other spectrum, we know that medication is more effective than the other measures alone. There is a tipping point where you know that you might need medication to help the brain actually take on the other stuff to let the exercise have benefit, to let the psychology work. And so I think there's this perception and there probably are people who have experienced this thing where you go to a doctor and say, I'm feeling sad or this has happened and there's a script at you. Yeah. And I, I would, it's awful that that would be the case. But, you know, what might happen is, you know, Tally or Sarah, you might come to me and go, this is how I'm feeling. And I would say, you need to come back and see me for a double appointment so we can nut this out. I get my patients to write. I'm saying, if you feel comfortable, can you write me a one page on how you're feeling, the stuff that you might not feel comfortable telling me. And on there, there'll be a thought of not wanting to be here. I cry every day. I don't want to get out of bed. And over a couple of consults, you get the picture. Yeah. Um, And it's not just going to be, here's the script. It's more, look, I don't think that the measures that I can provide you with and the psychologist can are going to be enough. I'm worried that you're getting really unmotivated. I'm worried that you're going to keep spiralling down. I'm worried that motivation is lowering. I think we need to use an adjuvant here like medication for, for a period. And when you talk to people about it like that and give them the option and, you know, let them make the decision, an informed decision, I find most patients will come round. Um yeah. And there are some people who say to me, I really want the tablet. And I'm like, I don't think you need it. I don't think you need it. So, yeah, it goes both ways. But there is still sadly a lot of stigma with mood disorders and also medicating for them. Yeah. Yeah. With someone who is taking uh, medication for mood disorder, is it something that they can come off or is once you're on it, you're on it? No, you're not on it. So for a first episode, so if you came to me with your first ever episode of depression, I would say, look, we're going to be on this for probably at least six to 12 months Mm -hmm. before we think about weaning it. You might want to wean it sooner. You might go after three months, Priya, I'm feeling awesome. Things are stable in my life. I want to come off it. And I would support you in that 100%. Let's do it together. Let's wean it safely so you reduce risk of side effects and I can monitor your mood. 
Some people who have frequent or relapsed depression who have kind of, um, you know, this is my fourth episode and I've been in hospital, some of those people can be on it much longer term. Some people are on it lifelong. But just because you're prescribed it doesn't mean you have to be on it forever. You are the patient. You're in the driver's seat. Yeah, like no one can force you to take anything at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah. Where I've got a couple of friends that um, were kind of pushed to go on antidepressants and now they can't get off them. So I'm just like... Makes can't me, get off or the thing... I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just like, it makes me worried because... And then I've got another friend that was like, oh, like during COVID, I was a little bit, you know, everyone was anxious. Everyone was yeah. unknown. Everyone was feeling sad, lonely, like whatever. And and this person actually said, you know, maybe you should go to the doctor and get on antidepressants. And I'm like, actually no, like I'm fine. I'm just having these emotions like everyone else. Like I might be sad for a little while, but um, yeah, it's, it's that thing that everyone's like anxious or I need to go on antidepressants. It's like a cool thing. I don't know. It's weird. It's not cool, That's but it's a cool thing. Yeah. I think there's different, um, there's, there's, there, there may be that aspect. I tend not to actually see those that in my room, if I'm okay. being honest. Yeah. I tend to see the people who are reluctant, who go, I don't want to do that. I'm scared. I'm going to get addicted. Yeah. You can't get addicted to, to antidepressants. There are other drugs like benzodiazepines, like mm-hmm. diazepam that you can get um, dependent on, but not antidepressants, the ones that we're talking about, like escitalopram, citalopram, sertraline. Um, but I think the, these medications definitely have a place. And, and I'm quite open about this. I had very severe generalised anxiety disorder as a medical student where I was having prolific panic attacks and not slept for six weeks and I had to use medication. Basically, my GP was like, oh, there is no way that we can get this under control without it. Yeah. And it literally turned my life around. Luckily, touch wood, I haven't had to go back there or had a relapse which is wonderful but you know I say to some of my patients who are very reluctant you know I don't want to take this medic I go well I did you know, oh, I, yeah, you know and yeah. people I've had you know young men who've gone well she shivers I won't swear but shivers <laughs> yeah. and that's yeah. changed their mind you know it's stigma it's this fear of being judged of <sighs> I, I shouldn't need to take a tablet I'm weak I'm, I'm not strong enough that's all baloney mental health issues none of us are immune to them doesn't matter about the job you've got the car you've got in your driveway what you look like doesn't matter we're mm. all absolutely vulnerable especially now yeah especially yeah, yeah agree um, I want to ask about mole checks. Can you go to a doctor? Well, that was a question. Can we go to a doctor to get a mole check or do you have to go to like a mole map or somewhere like that? Nah, you come to me. Okay, really? perfect. Yeah, so look, for a run-of-the-mill patient, I will just ask that you book a double appointment. Most of us will because most GPs will strip you down to bra and undies if you feel mm-hmm. comfortable. We will literally, for a full skin check, we're checking your skin, which is scalp, behind the ears, between your fingers, between your toes. You need to check the nails because you can get melanoma under the nail. You look at all of the skin. So I'll get you on the bed and flip you over like a rotisserie and we'll use a little instrument called a dermatoscope, which is like a magnifier to look at it. Yep. If you said to me, though, Priya, I've had a melanoma before or I've got 100 moles and I'm worried about 16 of them, I might go, okay, you need to either see a dermatologist or go and get mole mapping done. Mm-hmm. So if you're very high risk or you've got lots and lots of moles, then, yes, I might send you to somewhere more tailored. But, yeah, we do skin checks all the time. We just need a double appointment. And how often should, especially Australians, be getting um, skin checks? So really we say opportunistically. So we will try and remind you. But, I mean, if you're someone who has had a significant history of sun exposure or you're worried about something, you should be going the minute you notice something changing. But yearly, if you've got something, you know, a history that makes you slightly more increased risk, we would say yearly if you're a sun baker or 
a strong family history. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about current times, actually, about COVID. And probably, yeah, you're probably so sick of this, but I think there's a lot of like confusion and stuff. What's your take on the vaccine for COVID? That's not yet developed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like just a, just a take. Oh, you mean about the anxiety people are having about it being faster. Exactly, yeah. yeah. There's a lot um, of talk about it, but I'm like, guys, it's not even um, here. <laughs> like. Would you have it? Yeah. Or why I would, would you? Yes. Okay. I would have it. My kids would have it because anything that is released is going to have been vigorously tested. I think yeah. people assume that things being fast-tracked means that it's not going to have been adequately tested. It will have been. It will have been all the through all the phases of trials. That's the they thing. need to make sure before they release something, it's safe for pregnant women, safe for children, safe for the elderly, safe for over 65. They've got to do all these checks. Okay. So I'm confident that when the vaccine comes out, our family would put our hand up 100%. I'd be there the minute okay. it's available. That yeah. makes me but feel better because I was concerned about yeah, how everyone was like, it's been rushed, it's been rushed. I'm like, surely they can't bring out a vaccine that... I, w- I was going to ask, with other vaccines, has have there been a longer duration where you can say over a five-year per- period to see any, any repercussions of, have happened from the vaccine? So I'm not sure you mean in terms of like let's say Gardasil, for instance, the HPV vaccine, you mean from the time it was developed to the time it was released, do you Re- mean? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Is there I a- don't know what that time period yeah. is. I think it's different for every vaccine uh, depending on what their trials show in terms of what, we, what we're looking for in the trial is side effects, right? So yeah. with this COVID vaccine, for instance, you're looking for side effects. What we know is that if you're, if you're fast-tracking things or you're trying to rush something out, you will detect the common side effects, yes. You will get that most, you know, 40% of people experience some nausea with this vaccine and some people get headaches. What you might not get is that, you know, 0.01% of people might get a rash. Mm-hmm. So that's what we may miss with the slight, you know, getting it out, getting it out, getting it out. But risk benefit, I would much rather protect my family and take the very small 0.001 risk of the very rare side effect that we're not yet aware of Mm -hmm. to protect my family from COVID. And to actually live again, I just think we're so desperate to achieve this normal, we say COVID normal, COVID normal is actually, you know, you guys are in Melbourne, the face masks, the Mm. social distancing, the having to book your Pilates pool visit, whatever you're doing. Everything, (laughs) yeah. The hours ahead, you know, you just think, gosh, I miss my old life. And that thing that has been approved and is safe and has been regulated is going to do that, hand up for me. Yeah. Yep. Okay, that makes me feel better because I, I agree yeah, the rush that. The rush it, thing was making me nervous. But I was like, they can't bring out a vaccine and ru- like no. rush. They have to go through all the tests. Of course, all the testing criteria will still be met. Yeah. It still has to be deemed safe before they start injecting people. How long do you think it'll take? Do you? Oh, I don't know, but there is, you know, um, I think the US and now Australia are saying they think something might be on the market by early next year. So, okay. you know, then mm. the problem is I think people assume the minute there's a vaccine, we're going to... Back to normal. Vaccinate. We're not, though. It takes a while to achieve herd immunity with vaccination. You mm-hmm. need a certain proportion of the population to actually agree to vaccination and consent, which we yeah. know is probably going to be a barrier here. So... Yeah, there's still many, 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 many steps to go. Yeah, that's true. Well, I didn't even know that too. I would just presume once we get the vaccine, like life would just go back to normal. No, we'll take a bit of time. Yeah, right. And how do you feel about people's mental health, especially in Melbourne during this time as a GP and what would you suggest? Like 
everyone keeps saying it's just the beginning of all the struggles for Melburnians. What would you say for people listening moving forward to look after their mental health? So I think you need to be really kind to yourself and I think you need to have a low threshold to speak to someone, be it a support person, a parent, a friend, a partner, a GP, a psychologist. I think you need to have low threshold at the moment because I think people are sitting on things and going, well, it is a tough time and things are just spiralling for a lot of people. And there are so many factors here. There's social isolation, there's financial hardship, there's separation from loved ones and support people, there's people having babies without anyone like their family members around, like WA is a locked border and you can't get your parent across. Um, it's a really difficult time. So I think people need to do the simple stuff that helps the brain. So you can do the stuff that works like stay active, you know, aim for regular physical exercise like 30 minutes a day. Be careful with your alcohol intake because it's actually quite negative for your mood. Mm-hmm. Get enough sleep. Watch how much caffeine you're having if you're feeling anxious. Um, meditate if you can. So there's plenty of free apps that can help you with that. Do the stuff that is easy to do. I say easy, but that you can implement to help your brain. But if you feel you're not yourself and you go, I don't know where the old pre is gone or, you know, I am not seeing the light most days or I am feeling anxious most of the time, speak to someone. Mm-hmm. do it by telehealth with your GP or go and see them face-to-face. I'd much rather go and see a GP than go to a supermarket in terms of COVID risk. Yeah. Um, but talk to someone. There's the Blue, Beyond Blue has a coronavirus support hotline. Um, you've got, yeah, there's plenty of supports, but just reach out. Don't yeah. sit on stuff. Yeah. And I know for Victorians, I think might be all of Australia, now you get on the mental health plan, you now get 20 visits to a Correct. psychologist? Correct. Yeah, okay. How do you get the mental health plan? Oh, how do you get one? You see yeah. Oh, you do? Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah, th- this is, oh. Like, wow, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> I'm like, I'm really enjoying this chat. I yeah. But if, if you think you would like to see a psychologist, you go and chat to your GP. Now, you need to meet specific criteria to qualify for a mental health care plan. Okay. So you need to have a diagnosed mental health condition. Um, you need to actually meet diagnostic okay. criteria, which a lot of people probably do at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you need to go and see your GP. And normally I will see someone, I will take the history and I say, come back for a 30-minute appointment where I fill out loads of paperwork, where I give the patient homework to do, like mm-hmm. exercise, I prescribe walks, I prescribe sleep hygiene measures, like turn your screen off before bed, Love. all these kinds of things. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, a mental health care plan is pure gold because you get yep. hopefully practical tips from your GP and a plan and you get access to pure gold in the form of a psychologist. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm on a mental health plan. I and didn't it, know about And that. it's financially it helps a hell of a lot, yes. but it's I, I had the struggle of first going to my GP but once it, I opened it up and he's like yep go see someone it's just so freeing yeah yeah, yeah. good that's how it should be good yeah can yeah. you choose your own psychologist or okay yeah. you can okay and what I say to patients is a psychologist like you need to find the right psychologist yeah of course uh, yeah. there are so many who are wonderful but like GPs they they fit different people and have mm-hmm. different styles so I often use a specific group or couple that I know and I try and fit them with patients and I'm pretty good at picking them. (laughs) That's good. Yeah, you need to find the right person who, again, you feel safe with because a a good psychologist, holy mama, worth their weight in gold. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, I have a question about, obviously, in Melbourne, we face masks are compulsory. Yes. What's your take on face masks? Like for us, like I'm happy to wear it in a public space if you're in a supermarket or like on public transport or an Uber, 
But I think it's so silly. Like if you're walking from your apartment to your car or, you know, your apartment to a store, you have to wear a mask when you're not around anyone. You're just by yourself. What's your take on masks for everyday people like us out in the open at the moment? So when they were introduced, we had very high rates of community transmission in in Victoria, which means that basically COVID was circulating and you could pick it up from literally anywhere. So at that point, they just said blanket mask Mm -hmm. for exercise, for everything. Now, I think with the community transmission rates reducing to the levels that they are now, and we need to see what happens with the reopening, I suspect we will see modifications in the face mask mandates, which will be you must wear it in poorly ventilated enclosed spaces like a supermarket, like public transport, but you don't need to wear it if you're going to the park or going for a walk. I think it will probably adapt, but we need to see what happens with the reopening. But when it was introduced, it was probably fair to just do a blanket rule because it was just everywhere. Yeah, I agree with that. I think when when we hit that point, it was scary. So you were like, you know what, if we have to do this, it was annoying, but if you have to do this, you have to do it in order for it not to spread. Yeah. Yeah. Any more medical questions? I think that was all from all the peeps. Yeah, that was all. Do you have any other questions? No, I'm just really, I want to play my game. Oh, yeah. So this is completely (laughs) off topic of Dolly Doctor, but we always finish with a game. It's Sarah's little game. It's a food game. I love food, Priya. So true. Yes. So this is like your last, uh, like your ideal day on a, like a meal. We yes. used to say dying meal and I said, tell, that's pretty yeah, morbid. Like- you have to change it. So like if it was your like ideal meals. Entree, main dessert and Tal likes to throw in a cocktail. I throw in the cocktail just for fun. And is this for dinner? Yeah. Any, well, oh, it could be, it could be anything. anything. What's, what's your ideal meal? So entree, main dessert and cocktail. I mean, you could have cereal for entree, you could yeah. have anything. Oh, okay. Oh, gosh, you've really put me on the spot. I know. It's fun. Entree, I would probably go some form of ceviche. Probably. Oh God, that's that's a very popular yeah. answer. Is it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Probably fish. Probably Yum. work with an Asian fusion dressing, not dissimilar to like a chin-chin kind of um, yes. entree. Yum. That's my ultimate. Um, for a main, oh, it, <laughs> I'd probably go between my mum's dr- duck curry, which yum. is oh, yum. Yeah. I'm going to put two in here if that's Yeah, do it. Do it. Um, versus a really good solid spaghetti bolognese. Oh, yum. I really love people. That, that one that say, say an Italian meal, but also who choose um, their mum's or their grandmother's meal. It just like warms my heart yeah, so much. Oh, my mum's duck curry though. Seriously, it's it's heartwarming, but it's so delicious. Oh, yeah. Yum. I love a curry. Yum. It's so good. And dessert. So if we run those two. Dessert, I'm going to skip on and say I would go for an epic cheese board. Ah, yum. Cheddars, chevrets. Yeah. Um, I'd need a bit of Metwurst on there to really fill it out, but mm-hmm. I'd 100% go a cheese board over dessert any day. Man, yum. And yep. do you drink? Yes. Yes. Okay, cocktail, <laughs> come at me. Or <laughs> wine. Or wine. Any- something sour, maybe something like a mojito. Love oh, a yum. Yeah. Yum. That's yep. so refreshing too in summer. Yeah. Or champagne. I just, I'm happy with champagne too. Yeah. <laughs> yum. Yeah. I, saw, I saw on Instagram, you're, you love cooking. I do. I yeah. do. I'm all so about education as well. Yeah, well, it's just saying to people, get veggies in and it doesn't have to be hard and you yep. kids can eat, you know, my kids will eat basically what we eat um, and it's because they have no alternative. But, yeah, I love veggie packing. I love it. Yeah. Love yeah, it. So do we. And where can people find you on Instagram? So I'm at The Wholesome Doctor. 
That's it. That's all I can tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, make sure we put in the show notes, but we'll tag you in everything. I love that conversation because I definitely learned a lot of questions that I probably should have known. I've got a lot of reassurance with GPs. Agree. Agree. And, and find the right one. Keep hunting. Find the right one who you who you feel comfortable saying literally anything to and leave the room with no questions kind of unasked or unanswered. Okay, yeah. so I have one more thing. We yes. have quite a few followers that are from Melbourne. If yes. they resonated with you and they are looking for a GP, when will you be back and where do you practice from? And are you taking new clients on? Well, these are all things I can't quite answer yet. I'm just ah, I'll have to follow you. I'm talking to clinics. I do work in Richmond normally. Okay. Um, I would like to go back to there mm-hmm. and I am coming back in January, but I just okay. need to sort out where I'm going. Okay, perfect. So anyone listening, make sure you follow and, you know, follow when you come back to Melbourne so you know where. I'll be back Welcome. soon, guys. I'll be there yeah. with my face mask on. Yes. Well, hopefully, hopefully it's gone. gone. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Thank Please. you so much. Have a beautiful weekend. Thank you, guys. Thank Bye. you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.